Welcome to the Sports Lodge, where sports, entertainment, and pop culture merge within the mind of your host, Roger Lodge. Welcome to the Sports Lodge podcast. My name is Roger Lodge, and today I want to talk about this crazy business of broadcasting, whether it's radio or television, podcasting or streaming something on the internet or any other form of it. Is it easy? Is it fun? Because I get asked that a lot. So today, I want to bring in someone who has done a lot in this business. He does radio and television for ESPN. He's a longtime baseball writer up in the Bay Area. He knows the ins and outs of not only sports, but the business side of it. And a guy that is widely recognized as one of the top reporters in this wild and wacky business. He's been with ESPN since 2003, and all he's done there is cover about 15 World Series, 10 All-Star games, and for a while, you would have thought he and Barry Bonds were roommates as much as they were together when he was covering Bonds for the worldwide leader. But what about his career path? How tough was it? Is he now doing what he's always wanted to do? And by the way, through it all, through all he's accomplished, he's been a devoted husband and a father. He's a good friend of the Sports Lodge, and he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever want to meet. Here is Pedro Gomez. Pedro, welcome! My Lord, what an introduction. I was waiting to hear who you were introducing. <laughs> Pedro, how are you, my friend? I am doing great, Roger. How about you? I'm doing well, living the dream here, moving on to the big time, the Sports Lodge podcast. And it's just been so much fun having great conversations with people like you, Pedro. And I love your story. I mean, the fact that, you know, you move, your mom and dad come to America from Cuba in the early 60s, and you're born just a couple of weeks after their arrival in this country. Pedro, can you tell me about some of your earliest memories growing up? Yeah, I mean, Roger, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, you hear the cliche, the great American story, and in a lot of ways, I feel like I am living it. Um, you know, my parents came on August 1st of 1962, and I was born three weeks later on August 20th. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it, they had applied a year and a half earlier for an exit visa and, all the all the paperwork that you needed to become uh, to leave Cuba and arrive in the United States, and during that time, you know, she becomes pregnant. So all of a sudden, they get down to crunch time, and I was going to be born within a month of their departure. But like today, you are not allowed to fly on airlines if you are in your eighth month of pregnancy. So they had to get a family friend to falsify a doctor's note to say this woman is. Six months pregnant, she's due in November, when in fact I was, you know, like I said, I was just born three weeks later, because otherwise, if I had been born in Cuba, it would have been another year and a half at least of the paperwork process to get a passport, the visa, the U.S. entry, all of the things necessary, and um, thankfully, you know, they rolled the dice, and I was born here. I always like to say, though, I was made in Cuba, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, my earliest memories... Um, Look, I was born in Miami Beach, and uh, my parents relocated to Detroit within a year because the Catholic Church was helping to move families around the country to places that were maybe a little bit better off economically um, than, than Miami was at the time. He chose Detroit. My father was a banker in Cuba. 
here, had to learn English, um, eventually worked in banking again. And is because the economy in the early 60s in Detroit was so strong because Chrysler, Ford, and GM were, were you know, the big three were an enormous engine, economic engine. So he thought this would be a good spot. And then, you know, within a few years, the race riots and, you know, things didn't go as well in Detroit. But uh, I remember, you know, my first major league game, Tiger Stadium. I was about five years old and I'll, I'll you know, always remember it. It was the Washington Senators, now the Texas Rangers. So you walk into the great Tiger Stadium as a five-year-old kid. You're walking into your first major league ballpark, and there he is up close in person. It's Norm Cash. It's Dick McCall. <laughs> it's Denny McLean, or or maybe it was uh, uh, Mickey Lolich on the Bill Freehand behind the plate. What will you always remember about your first trip to Tiger Stadium? I just remember how the grass was greener than anything I had ever seen in my life. The enormity of the stadium. I mean, it was the biggest place I, you know, in the world to a five-year-old. There was no larger edifice anywhere. And uh, just, you know, being baseball is, is kind of interwoven into, a, you know, the Cuban culture. So baseball was always the only sport that was ever spoken about in our house. And I just remember, wow, this is the, this is baseball. This is as high as it gets. Um, you know, not realizing as a five-year-old that it's the, the greatest level, but just understanding these are the best players. And um, being able to walk in there and, and see that was just spectacular. And, you know, I, I think every child who grows up to be a baseball fan always remembers that first time in a big league stadium. I don't think that that's that unusual to have that memory somewhere in the back of your your brain's hard drive just lodged in there. So that is your first trip to Tiger Stadium. You're five years old. At what point in your childhood, Pedro, did you get, you know, hooked on sports? Uh, early on, and I would say that because of the success of the 68 Tigers, uh, the year I turned six, that probably played – a significant role. I mean, they went on to win the World Series that year. The entire city was engulfed in Tiger mania. And for that reason, I, I think I was hooked from that point forward because of the success that the Tigers enjoyed that season, me being there and just, the, you know, being swept up in it. You'd go to first grade and, and every kid is talking about the Tigers game last night or how Norm Cash did or how Mickey Stanley made this incredible catch. Al Kaline hit a two-run homer. Like, that's all we talked about. Um, and, and it wasn't like games were on TV. It was rare. I think only like 20 or 30 games were actually on television. We just listened to Ernie Harwell, not realizing it was the Hall of Famer Ernie Harwell, but just listening to Tigers games on the transistor radios that was how we followed baseball, but we were religious about it, all of us. Pedro, when I grew up out here on the left coast, uh, a big California Angel fan, there was always, I always fell in love with the obscure players. We had a pinch hitter one season named Winston Jennis, who it seemed to me every time he came up to pinch hit, they called him pinch hit deluxe. He would get a hit every time he came up. 
I can walk out on the streets here on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood right now, and nobody would know the name Winston Jennis. He might have been the most obscure angel of all time, but he was my favorite, one of my favorites. Give me one of your most obscure favorite Detroit Tigers back in the day. Well, you, you know what? You want to talk about a pinch hitter or extraordinaire? Gates Brown certainly was that guy. A tremendous, but he was probably a little bit better known because he was such a terrific pinch hitter along the lines of a Manny Moda, so to speak. But I would say I, I was always partial to those middle infielders. So for me, there was a, there was a guy named Tommy Magic, um, who was an obscure Tiger. But, you know, he was a backup middle infielder. But whenever he played, it seemed like he did something to help the club win. Um, you know, it's easy to, to pick out an Al Kaline or a Willie Horton. Those were the stars of the team. Mickey Stanley certainly was, uh, you know, a guy that squeezed every ounce out of his ability to become a multiple all, a multiple uh, Gold Glove winner, um, you know, World Series champion. And one of the Andrew Jones before Andrew Jones in the sense that if a ball was hit the center field against the Tigers, chances are very high that Mickey Stanley had it in his back pocket. No matter where the ball was hit, he was that terrific of a fielder. Um, not a great hitter, but you know, I just I, I can name you almost everybody off that roster from '68 to to '70 when they they were a very very good team. '67 as well when they lost the American League pennant by one game to the Red Sox on the last day of the season. So you spend all that time in Detroit. At what point did you hightail it to Miami, which is where you went to high school? Yeah, it was in the later 70s that we uh, ended up in, in Miami, and uh, I moved there when I was in 10th grade, uh, finished high school there, and stayed there for a while. I went to college, uh, the whole thing, and I, I would say that that's where you know, my more formative years were spent. Um, and uh, you know, it, was, it was wonderful in the sense that when we moved to Miami, you know, my parents came, they didn't speak English. They subsequently learned English. But the first language I ever spoke was Spanish. And so in the house, it was always Spanish. And then we get to Miami, and all of a sudden, every house I went into, Spanish was the language. Uh, you know, there's so many Cubans that, that live in Miami. It's, 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 it's the second highest population of Cubans outside of Havana is Miami. So it didn't matter what house we were at. Uh, all of a sudden, Spanish reemerged, and, and I got stronger in the language as well being able to speak it so so often in, in other situations. Like, I remember even in the hallways of, of my high school at Coral Park High School, um, you know, we would speak Spanish to each other. And it was, it was actually rewarding in the sense that you were practicing something that was going to be beneficial for you down the road, not knowing at the time how beneficial it would be. But uh, certainly it, it's played a significant role in my career, I would say, being bilingual. Did you play sports in high school, Pedro? I played high school baseball as a JV player and uh, only was able to play one year. That was, I, I, as scouts often say, the game will always tell you your ceiling. <laughs> um, and I, I learned my ceiling early, early on. That was my ceiling, and uh, but my love of the game never, ever disappeared. And so I went to Miami-Dade Community College South Campus, Miami-Dade South, and, uh, you know, they make you take elective courses. And there was a J-101 class, Journalism 101, 
And all of a sudden, it was like, holy cow, I might be able to have a job in sports, even though I can't be on the field, um, that, that could be pretty fun. And that's, that's where I veered into this side of the business. At the University of Miami, is it there where you uh, started your, you know, honing your craft, writing for the school newspaper? It started before that when I was at Dade South. I was a two-year JUCO guy, so before I transferred. Um, so it was actually, a, I had a wonderful, wonderful journalism teacher whose name, no relation, but his name was Peter Townsend. Uh, wow! No, no relation to the Who's guitarist. <laughs> um, but, you know, he often heard the jokes. And believe me, if you saw him, you'd say, there's no way this guy will ever be confused for, for the, uh, the guitarist. But he was, um, he, was uh, he, he recognized the passion that I had shown and pulled me aside and said, look, uh, there's, there's an opening for a once-a-week kid to just answer the phones and put together these little one-paragraph summaries of sports events at the South Dade News Leader in Homestead, Florida. The pay is almost next to nothing. I said, I don't care. I'll take it. Um, so I would go in on Friday nights, uh, put together these little one-paragraph summaries on the, the Homestead High or the Southgate High volleyball team, the track and field event, whatever, the baseball game. Um, and that's, that's basically, Roger, when I started, and I remember I paid $38 for that one day a week, and I didn't care. I was doing what I wanted to do. And... Um, you know, you were talking earlier about how is it fun, is it worth it, whatever. I think it's worth it if you enjoy what you're doing. If you enjoy what you're doing, then it's never work, and you'll, I think you'll always be happy. What was the ultimate draw for you? What drew you in to doing what you do today? My dream was to become a Major League Baseball beat writer for, you know, one of the, one of the big league clubs. And that was it. If I could reach that dream, in my mind, it's like I will have made it. And, uh, you know, it, it took a while, but uh, I did it by the age of 29 when at the San Jose Mercury News, I had moved out to the Bay Area subsequently after a few jobs, one in Miami, one in San Diego, and then up in the Bay Area. There was an opening for the A's beat writer uh, job. And I, at my paper, I was covering high school, which often was the, you know, the entry way into a sports section and uh, got to cover a, <laughs> got to cover the, the, the incredible A's, the Bash Brothers, the Dave Stewart, Dennis Eckersley, uh, the, you know, that, that incredible team that they had in the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, just, you know, Tony La Russa, I learned from him. Um, it's just one of those things where if you just keep your ears open and your mouth shut, you will learn so much, so much. What year did you start with Oakland? 1990, I was the backup. 1992, I was the full-time guy, and it was right at the end of that magical, you know, five-year period that they had. But I remember covering the 1990 World Series as a backup. The Reds and the A's, uh, the Reds swept the A's, and uh, boy, it was, it was, you know, wasn't supposed to go that way. That's not how it was scripted for Oakland, but the Reds outpitched them, no doubt about it. Yeah, Cincinnati. And, uh, that was the year that there was the uh, the Lou Pinella orchestrated Cincinnati sweep, and we always, you know, we always hear what a baseball genius Tony Larusa was. Well, will you confirm or deny Tony Larusa baseball genius? Uh, I would say Tony Larusa is a baseball savant. 
and I would say he is uh, one of his biggest strengths was probably motivating. He was an incredible motivator, and if you remember that A's team, it was full of superstars. They were the rock stars of baseball, whether it was Canseco, McGuire, Dave Henderson, Ricky Henderson, Dave Stewart, Dennis Eckersley, Bob Welch. I mean, they were just Terry Steinbeck, Walt Weiss, Carney Lansford. You know, they were just, it was an all-star team. And a lot of times, those are the teams that are the most difficult to get to play together. And Larusa had a way about him that uh, he was able to get those guys pointed in one direction and forget about their individual accomplishments and focus on the team goals more than anything. And to me, that that is much more difficult than getting, let's say you have a 25-man roster now with uh, 15 guys who have three years or less of big league experience. That's an easier club to manage because everyone is still trying to make their name. Whereas those A's, so many of them had already made their name. They could easily say, I got mine. I don't care. But Larusa had a way of motivating each and every player, and that's probably what one of the bigger reasons that they were so successful. Did you ever have the opportunity uh, at one point or another just to sit around, whether it be in his office or the dugout, and just talk baseball or just talk life with Tony Larusa one-on-one? I did that as often as I could. And, and the unfortunate thing I think today is that those conversations don't take place because a lot of times today the manager's office is off limits to, to the beat writers. You, you can't just go in there. You know, the managers now come to the podium, speak at the podium, and that's about it. You might be able to get a little bit of one-on-one time with a manager, but it's just for a couple of minutes. I mean, I used to do that routinely no matter who the A's were playing. I remember sitting in Sparky Anderson's office, at Tiger Stadium, him with his pipe, his ripped undershirt, his also ripped undershorts, and he'd just sit there, and you could ask anything you wanted to Sparky, and he would give you whatever amount of time you wanted. Uh, you know, I would do that with, with Buck Showalter at Yankee Stadium when he was a young, young manager uh, of the Yankees, his first big league job. It didn't matter who. Lou Pinella in Seattle, I could go in and speak to him, and he was always gracious um, it, 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 it was such a different era in terms of covering the team. And I, I think that it's, it's kind of hurt the storytelling of the game today that, uh, you know, that, that it, it, those stories don't get out, out as often as they used to. Um, you know, at the time, I, look, when I started, we, we were allowed to fly on the A's charter. We stayed at the Ace Hotel. So after a game, if we went down to the bar, you know, Dave Duncan, the pitching coach, could be there. Doug Rader, the hitting coach, could be there. Dave Stewart could be there. Uh, you know, it didn't matter who. They were there, and you could just talk to them as regular guys, and there was a trust factor built in that I think doesn't exist as much today. And probably a lot of that has to do with the fact that everyone has a telephone or a video camera, you know, in their, po- in their pocket right now with, with their phone. And how about for a young Pedro Gomez? There you are. You're up in the Bay. It's the 90s for Pete's sake. All the girls are hanging out with their really wide pants with their <laughs> belly buttons pierced, going to the Palladium with a 40-ouncer snuff, you know, that they snuck into their purse. So, so for you, as a young man hanging up in the Bay Area, hanging out with a great music scene up there, what was that like for you personally? 
It was wonderful because my wife and I are both fans of music. Um, so we were a young couple. This was before our we had had a child yet. And uh, so we would go into San Francisco and go see, you know, OMD at, at Club DB8. Um, I, I always loved the name of that bar, that bar, DB8. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was the letter D, the letter V, and the number 8. DV8, that was the name of the bar. But, you know, there were, there were so many bands that came through San Francisco and Oakland. Uh, you know, we saw Peter Gabriel at the old Oakland Coliseum where the Warriors just finished their last season. Tremendous, tremendous show. The Cure. It didn't matter what. The Bay Area always had great bands. So we loved music, and we would often go see phenomenal groups at, at different venues, whether it was San Jose, San Francisco, or Oakland. They were always coming through town. So... That part was incredible. Um, you know, being so close to San Francisco, a young couple, never having lived in California, either of us, to be able to go and hang in the city um, was was eye-opening to us, even though we both came from Miami, which is also an exciting city. But if you've never been to San Francisco or California and you're coming from Florida, it's so different for us. And, you know, seeing mountains for the first time in our lives um, on a regular basis, you just get in the car and there's, you know, Mount Tamil pays, whatever it is, they're all right there. Um, you're surrounded by mountains, you're surrounded by a beautiful bay, just, you know, it's spectacular. And, and I, I'm glad that we were able to, to live the early part of our marriage in, in the Bay Area. Best concert you've ever attended? Earth, Wind and Fire at the Hollywood Sportatorium in Hollywood, Florida. And I would say it was probably 1985 or six, maybe 87, right in that period. And it was when Earth, Wind, and Fire was, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Philip Bailey, uh, just they were they were incredible. And to this day, still the greatest concert I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot, and I've seen some great bands, but that one still stands out to me. Could you sing "Shining Star" right now? <laughs> <laughs> acapella like they do at the very end of the song oh my for you to see what your life can truly be <laughs> that will live on in sports lodge history forever my friend okay so after the bay area and you mentioned i mean the bash brothers it was mcguire canseco giambi miguel tejada a little five eight guy yeah. hitting bombs and we always hear about you know, when a couple of guys were, you know, nabbed or busted for steroids, especially Alex Rodriguez, he always refers to the, oh, it was so loosey-goosey back in that era. You covered the Oakland A's during the glory days of the steroid era. What was it like? Was it as loosey-goosey as everybody says it was? I mean, it may have been behind the scenes. It certainly wasn't loosey-goosey in front of us. There's no doubt about that. It was not like that. Uh, they weren't... They weren't passing uh, their their bottles around saying, hey, try this one, stick your needle in this one, and, and try this one. It wasn't anything like that. Um, but I would say more than anything, Roger, and, and I think we were all guilty of it, because, look, subsequently Mark McGuire admitted that he used. Uh, Jose Canseco admitted in a book that he used. Um, you know, obviously Oakland was considered now, is considered now one of the epicenters, but I would say we didn't know. We didn't know what was in front of us at the time, and it, it probably, you know, is a, is a huge black mark or a strike against us that we're there, but it, it wasn't like we were all 
thinking at the time, oh, this guy's on juice for sure. This guy is also on. You know, it, it wasn't something that really crossed your mind at the time. Subsequently, yes, I felt like a fool for not being more aware that something was going on. But at the time, you know, it wasn't introduced into the game. It wasn't known in the game. And, you know, I'll, I'll accept full blame for, for being naive, but it was not loosey-goosey in the sense that we knew what was going on because they were doing it in front of us. No, they were very clandestine about how they were using. Uh, and, and so, you know, they must have known this is wrong because they wouldn't hide the other things they were doing. You know, creatine was a big protein shake at the time. The creatine bottles, the, the, the packs of it, they were sitting in the lockers. They were in the wide open. But the other stuff, the harder stuff, that certainly was not in the wide open. Okay. You go from the glory days of the steroid era with the Oakland A's, and from there you move to ESPN. How did the whole ESPN thing come about for you? Yeah, I mean, well, in, in the 97 season, I get a call from the Arizona Republic uh, the sports editor saying, hey, we don't have anybody on our staff that's ever covered Major League Baseball. We're looking for someone to be a national baseball writer and introduce baseball to our readers because the Diamondbacks are starting next year. And my wife and I had both come down here for spring training because the A's trained down here. So we did that, and we thought, you know what, this could be good. Uh, you know, your money goes a lot farther in Phoenix than it does in the Bay Area. <laughs> and <laughs> no, no, no surprise, no shock there. But, um, and you know, our family was expanding and we thought this would be this, we, we could live a much more comfortable life and, and it would be, you know, it's, it's a good spot. So we moved here in 97, Diamondbacks start in 98. And then in 03, I wish I had a sexier story, Roger, but my phone rings and, you know, caller ID was big back then. It was like, Oh, ESPN. I said, who's calling me from ESPN. And it was one of the editors there saying, Hey, we have an opening for a uh, reporter, and I said, well, you know that I don't do, and this is before dot-com was around, so I said, I'm not a TV reporter, and they said, no, 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 no. We, if you look at the stable of our reporters, many of them come from a print background, and so literally, Roger, I answered the phone, and I said, yeah, I'll come up and apply, and I went up, and I got the job, um, and, and I often wish it was a sexier story, like, oh, I pursued it for this and that. I answered the phone. That was it. That was it. They had an opening, and uh, I went and I applied, and I got the job in 03 and have been there ever since. So now you got to be on camera. So what do you do? Do you start practicing <laughs> in front of the mirror? How did you get ready to be an on-camera guy? It wasn't easy, <laughs> and it probably still isn't easy, <laughs> some people would say. Some people would say, this guy doesn't belong on camera. Um, thankfully, ESPN is more interested in information than they are in, you know, the good looks. Unlike a person like you, Roger, you, of course, you know, handsome, dash rip rock looking guy. <laughs> um, throwing out my Beverly Hillbillies reference. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, look, I struggled. I struggled early on, and there's still times where I still will, you know, stub my foot here or there. Um, it is nerve-wracking uh, to think that, you know, how many people are watching you. I think more than anything over the years, I've gotten more comfortable thinking, not thinking about that part of it, and just concentrating on, here's the information I have, and I have to give it to you, and 
that's it. That's all I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about how many people are out there watching. And that's, that was probably my biggest obstacle or hurdle to overcome. And a lot of people will, of course, forever link you with Barry Bonds. You covered him for what I think was turned out to be three seasons as he was running down Hank Aaron's all-time home run record. What do you remember most about covering Barry Bonds for a three-year period? I think what I remember most is how difficult he made it when it didn't have to be as difficult. It certainly didn't have to be that way. Look, I, I often think about, like, what if it was a guy like Tory Hunter or Mike Trout? It, 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 when I first started that assignment, I got a call over the offseason saying, look, we are looking to cover Bonds on a daily basis as he chases both Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron. And you are a former beat writer. You know the nuances of covering a team on a daily basis. So we would like you to do it. And, of course, I'm going to say yes, whatever the assignment is. That's what reporters do. You, you, here's the assignment. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm on it. Um, but, I, you know, I got there and I explained to him the first few days what it is ESPN wanted to do, and I also explained, look, we can make this fun, man. It could be, if, if we sat down for five minutes once a week and went over anything, hey, what's your, what are your top five movies you ever watched? What, what's your favorite ice creams? Um, you know, just do things, and I explained to him, it could be anything we want. Who are the toughest left-handed pitchers you've ever had to face? Things like that. Just to have fun with it. And, um, you know, it was shot down, and I'm not doing anything. And and sure enough, he didn't end up doing anything other than what he wanted to do at any point, which, of course, is his prerogative. But it could have really, I think, benefited him on, on a national level if he had just been more of a human being. But that's not his personality. Yeah, it's, it wasn't am- like that. it's amazing when you stop now and think about the opportunity he had to endear himself with America, and he chose to go the other direction. But here's the thing, Pedro. I, I was in line at Petco near my home recently, and there's Barry Bonds in front of me buying Dick Van Patten's dog food. And I have a, I get, a, I get into a ten minute conversation with Barry Bonds about the benefits of Dick Van Patten's dog food, and he was the nicest guy in the world. Why did he change? Or did, did was there just so much backlash about how tough he was? Because he seems different now. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with you that he he definitely has softened, and uh, you know, there's that old famous quote that sometimes athletes learn to say hello when it's when they're saying goodbye, and it's unfortunate that that he chose that path. But you know, I, I've heard different way, different explanations for him that that was the only way he could truly stay motivated, and he needed to have a foil, and he used the media as a foil, and that way he he had somebody that that he could kind of channel his anger toward, and and it would it would play a positive role for him on the field. But, you know, then I, again, I think of guys like Mike Trotter, Tory Hunter, uh, you know, any number of others, Max Scherzer, who are incredible people and are still Hall of Fame level players. So you don't have to be that kind of a, a horse's ass in order to be successful. You can still be successful and be a good guy. And like you said, I, he could have opened up who knows how many avenues 
to endear himself. Because don't forget, wherever the Giants went, there were negative signs. There were, there were you know, needles, not needles, but... Uh, Syringes? What are they? Syringes. <laughs> Couldn't think of the word. Syringes thrown out on the field when he would come up to bat, things like that. So, you know, he, he certainly didn't help himself by being the villain, but maybe that is how why he was successful. I don't believe that's why he was successful. I think talent will always win. Um, you know, like I said, Mike Trout doesn't have to be a, a jerk to be successful. You, you can be a good guy and still be successful. And from the access that you had back in the day while covering Barry Bonds, was he really as separate from his teammates as we were all led to believe? There was a lot of that, absolutely. Um, there, there wasn't. It wasn't. You know, hey, this is our guy. You know, let's let's go out and grab dinner and things like that. There, there was very little of that. And I remember talking to players who, one day, he would have a fifteen-minute gracious conversation with someone, and you know, so you'd think as that player, oh wow, we made a breakthrough. You know, we're we're, we're pals. And the very next day. They would walk by each other in the clubhouse. The player was like, hey, and Bonds would not even look in his eyes, just walk directly past him without saying a word and not say a word the entire day. Whereas a day earlier, you just had a 15 or 20 minute, really what, what the other player would tell me was a groundbreaking conversation, how great he could be. And so it makes you think that maybe there was some bipolar issues going on. I don't know. I, I certainly don't know, but it was just bizarre. And those are the type of actions that, certainly did not uh, ingratiate himself with his teammates. Did you have that same experience with him? One day you guys would go in and do something on camera or maybe not even just, a, you know, just an interview off camera and he was great, but the next day was a completely different story? Absolutely. There were times that he was charming. It wasn't necessarily on camera. On camera you saw what he was on camera. But there would be times where, you know, I was, it was just me. Just me alone talking to him. And we'd have a 15, 20-minute conversation about whatever. And he was really gracious and, and adding to the conversation and asking questions and things like that. And the very next day, uh, zero acknowledgement, zero. Even if I said, hey, Barry, what's up? Zero, zero. So, um, you know, it, it certainly did not make it easy. Um, and again, I think, look, I, I was going to be on TV regardless because it was a huge story nationally. So it certainly, he could have done something to help himself, but that's not what he chose. Give me the all-time favorite guy you ever interviewed. Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, I, I, Dave Stewart and Dennis Eckersley certainly jump out. There are others. There's, there's, there's definitely others. But I spent more time with those guys because I was in the A's clubhouse. Dave Henderson was a tough cookie at first. Um, it's almost like he made you work to earn his trust or to show who you really were. But, boy, if you broke through with Dave Henderson, the, the world was yours in terms of asking him anything you wanted. He would fill you in on whatever you wanted to know. Um, but you had to earn your stripes, so to speak. Um, I, I'm glad I got to do those A's. Todd Stylemeyer, I know, could be viewed from the outside as difficult, but God, he was—he still is to this day a, a wonderful, wonderful human being. There's, there's a lot of guys. Look, I'm going to leave out 
I'm going to certainly leave out people, but uh, Stu and Eck jump out because I spent so much time in that Oakland clubhouse with them. And those guys uh, are, are incredible people. Pedro, I'm loving this conversation, and I've always been about uh, the relationships that we build in this business. I absolutely love that. Let me ask you this. If you could sit down right now with two people from our industry, past or present, and interview them about their relationship, Kobe and Shaq, Jordan and Pippen, uh, Lolich and McLean back in the day, who would you want to sit down with and talk to them about their dynamic that made up their relationship? If, if they don't have to be teammates, I would have loved to have sat down with DiMaggio and Ted Williams. Oh. And just like, because they were rivals, you know, one was a Yankee, one was a Red Sox. One was considered the greatest hitter of all time. The other one considered himself the greatest hitter of all time. Um, just uh, I, the fact that their careers mirrored each other for for you know this, the time span that it did. Um, one was able to get World Series rings almost on a yearly basis. The other never did. Um, there, there would be so many questions I would love to find out about what that dynamic was like of these two players from these two cities that dislike each other, these two organizations that are huge rivals, what was that truly like back in the day? Plus, there was no social media, so a lot of it was being, you know, ushered back and forth by newspapers for the most part. And uh, just, just, just to sit down and, and get honest answers from both of those guys. Pedro Gomez, for any kid out there listening right now, let me shift gears a little bit here. For any kid out there that wants to do what you do, what would be a really, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time, so what advice do you give an up-and-coming kid who wants to do what you do? I would say persevere. Perseverance is a big part of it because you're going to be rejected you know, multiple times, dozens and dozens of times. So if it's truly what you want to do, keep at it. Um, read as much as possible. You get so much better by reading other sports writers and reading sports stories and, and not just sports, but anything. Just read as much as possible. Become educated in a lot of facets because you never know if you're going to be interviewing a, you know, a Ron Darling who went to Yale and was bored by sports talk. But if you wanted to talk about John Paul Stevens, you know, the, the Supreme Court justice or, or John Jay, the Federalist, uh, one of the early Supreme Court justices, he would love those kind of conversations. So become as educated as possible because you never know what you are going to be talking about. I would also say, and I know this isn't easy because of the expenses, but travel as much as possible because you do gain so much of a wealth of education from traveling, meeting people, learning people. And I would say also, you, you, you've got to be a people person. It's not, so many times I get approached saying, oh, I know every stat about every player. That's great. And I always say, look, I don't, but I know how to find it. But people are interested in people. They're not interested in numbers. Numbers is not why we watch sports in the sense of, uh, you know, we want to know what, what makes that player tick. What makes that t- coach such a good coach? What did he do 
to get to where he is. Um, people are interested in people. And so many times nowadays, I think analytics has played a role in this, Roger, that, you know, it's, it's all about numbers. No, numbers are the easiest way for me to you start spewing numbers out and I just tune out. I don't care. But you start telling me about how, how remember former A shortstop Mike Bordick, non-drafted, non-drafted out of college, University of Maine, brought in, he's playing in the Cape Cod League. The A's had a second rounder or a third rounder that they picked the shortstop. And he was holding out for like an extra $10,000. And the A said, look, if you don't take this, this is our final offer. If you don't take it, I'm going to go in the other dugout, and I'm going to sign Mike Bordick for about $1,000, and this offer is going to be pulled. And that shortstop said, hey, you do whatever you have to do. Mike Bordick ended up being an all-star in the major leagues, was the shortstop that took over for Cal Ripken with the Orioles when Ripken moved over to third base, you know, played more than 10 years in the big leagues. Those, that to me is far more interesting than you telling me that in his last 38 games, you know, so and so has 22 doubles and four triples, and I don't care. Give me a story about people. And give me the single most important ingredient in a story that involves a person that makes you want to chase it. I think intrigue and interest. Is, is there something really interesting about? a person's story. And I think more time, I would say nine out of 10 times, if you really dig, there normally is something there that really will attract people into your story. But you've got to, you've got to do homework. You've got to talk to people. Maybe you've got to call a high school coach. Maybe you've got to call a college coach, a college teammate, somebody, and, and try to find out something interesting and intriguing about that player. Yeah, you know, he was going to quit baseball. Like Lorenzo Cain, you know, the Brewer center fielder. My Lord, didn't play baseball until he was in 10th grade at high school in Tallahassee. And now he's an all-star in the major league. That's, that's incredible to me. Or back in the 70s in your Detroit area when Ron LaFleur oh. was in a prison, and next thing you know, he's out of prison and he's starring playing outfield for the Detroit Tigers. That was an incredible story, right? That, I mean, Billy Martin was the manager of the Tigers. Somebody said, you really, really should come over and watch this, this kid who's in prison. And Billy's like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, 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 no. It was, it was you know, theft or something. It wasn't like a, it wasn't armed robbery. It was just, you know, he broke into a store, stole some things. So it's not like he's a, a dangerous criminal. I mean, he is a criminal, don't, no doubt. But yeah, Billy Martin was invited to this prison to come watch him. And he said, this kid's got talent. Told the Tigers, let's sign this guy. You know, he played in the minor leagues a few years. And boom, ended up playing, I think, nine or ten years in the big leagues. Led the league in stolen bases. Was a starting center fielder in an all-star game uh, in Philadelphia, the bicentennial year. Um, just, you know, things like that. Those are incredible stories. Yeah, without question. And earlier when you were talking about your days at the Sacramento Bee or the San Jose Mercury News, it's it's amazing how similar our paths are, Pedro. Let me explain what I'm saying here. I had a really, it was, he was a, a no BS talent agent once tell me, you want to be an actor? Go act. It doesn't have to be the lead in a Tom Hanks movie or, <laughs> or, or playing a superhero in a $200 million blockbuster, but go do an off-Broadway play. Go do an off, 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 off-Broadway play. Go do scenes. Go put the work in. 
you put the work in at a lot of different places. So when you got to ESPN on a national level where a lot of people were going to see you, you hit the ground running because you had done it a bunch of times before, right? Yeah, I mean, you do have to put in the reps, so to yes, speak. Yes, yes. Um, it's not uh, – that's the other thing that, you know, a lot of times someone will say, oh, I could do your job. I'm like, okay, so you can call Brian Cashman right now and get him on the phone or <laughs> Billy Epler and, well, no, I don't have that. Oh, then I guess you can't do yes. it. You know, it's, an arrogant, it's an arrogant stance to take. I could do what you do. Okay, well, I didn't start doing this when I was 20. You have to learn how to be a professional, like you're talking about. You want to act? Go, go to a you know, community theater somewhere and start acting first before you, know, you, you go on a real audition somewhere. Go get some reps in. You do have to get reps, and that's why you, know, you, you, you may not start out in a large market or at a large newspaper, but if it's truly what you want to do, then go jump into the deep end of the pool and do it. How many people could I get on the phone right now that could get Brian Cashman on the phone or Billy <laughs> Epler or sing Shining Star by Earth, Wind, and Fire? Let me tell you something. Not a whole lot of guys. Lastly, last thing, Pedro, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation, but last thing here. It's been here, great on my end. <laughs> I, I want to talk about how hard and competitive this crazy business can be. It's not easy to keep it rolling, how has the business changed the most for you? Well, there's fewer jobs. There's no doubt about that. It's not like it once was. Um, so that, that part makes it more difficult because there just aren't as many jobs as there once were. But I never try to dissuade. Like, I go to Arizona State and I speak to the students at the Cronkite Communication School here, which is one of the best in the country. And, you know, they all think, oh, I can start out at ESPN. And I often tell them, you're probably not going to start out at a national level, um, you know. But if this is truly what you want to do, go go after it. There aren't as many jobs as there once were, but that doesn't mean there aren't jobs. And if it's truly what you want to do, it'll never ever be work to you, and you'll always enjoy it. And I've always found it fascinating, Roger, that if you truly are doing something that you love, it is amazing how somehow the money does come. Um, again, my, my whole dream was just to be a beat writer covering a big league team. And doors just kept opening. And, and obviously I'm incredibly thankful and I feel blessed, but if you truly love what you're doing, I think that passion um, and that love exudes, it, it comes out exuding from you, and people see it and they notice and they say, this is somebody that really loves what they're doing. Let's, let's see if we can interview him and see what we think. And you never know who's listening. There's a lot of people who have stumbled across this Sports Lodge, pod, uh, Sports Lodge podcast who, well, Pedro Gomez sounds familiar, but I don't know a whole lot about him. I want my audience to get to know you real quick here. So just give me some quick hit answers here. You ready? Absolutely. Pedro Gomez, you can have this band or performer in your backyard tonight. Who is it? Oh, man, I didn't know there was going to be a test. I'm going to say Mick Jagger. You can take an episode of this TV show. It's the only one you can take to heaven. Which one you taking? 
Uh, it's going to be a Seinfeld episode. No matter when you come across this movie, you stop what you're doing and you have to watch it till the end. The Godfather. First sports poster you ever had up on your wall. Al Kaline. Ooh, youngest man to ever win a batting title. I love that one. First, and that probably is a record that may never be broken, by the way. By the way, did you, and I talked to Bob Costas about this recently. There's a nice name drop. You can't teach what I do. But I asked Costas, <laughs> I asked Costas who's the guy that you, uh, you know, you started interviewing him early on and then you became friends with him and it was almost surreal. For me, it's Angel left-hander Clyde Wright. For Pedro Gomez, it's who? Charles Barkley and George Lopez. Oh, well, Lopez, I see him all the time here at the at the, yeah. at the golf course. He's like the nicest guy in the world, George Lopez. I'm, I'm actually going to go see him tonight. He's at Wild Horse Pass here in Chandler, believe it or not. Unbelievable. Send my love. First non-sports poster up on your wall as a kid. Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> Who didn't? With the red bikini, right? Absolutely. Well, it wasn't a bikini. It was a one-piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for uh, punching me up on that. The one box of cereal you could destroy in one sitting. I took down a box of Captain Crunch last night. Who could you destroy what cereal in one sitting? I would say Golden Grams. Name the interview that could and should have won you an Emmy. Oh, uh, oh whoa, whoa, whoa. Derek Jeter, when he was playing his final game at Yankee Stadium. Oh, my God. What was that like? You know what? Jeter always kind of gave stock answers. And I remember my last question to him was, what are you going to miss most? And he started on some, you know, oh, the teammates, the locker room, the clubhouse. And he stopped. He goes, no, you know what? The fans. The fan. And he stopped himself and reversed course. Because he started to give me a stock answer, right? And and he put a lot of thought into it, and all of a sudden, it was it was like, whoa, this is not the usual Derek Jeter. Who look, us in the business would often say Derek Jeter talks after every game, but when you go back and, and listen to it, he didn't say anything. He'll talk, but he doesn't say anything. And that was like the first time it was like, whoa, all right, this time you actually did say something. And he put a lot of thought into that answer. You know what's amazing to me, Pedro, is, you know, the five World Series titles, Mr. Clutch, he'll be forever loved by Yankee fans everywhere, 3,000 hits, a home run for his 3,000th hit, which was pretty gosh darn amazing. But the one thing I'll never forget about Derek Jeter, remember the commercial that Nike did for him uh, when it was time for his last game and they started running the commercial where he basically walked to Yankee Stadium for his final game. Yep. And he walked through a, a restaurant bar. And the bar, the guy who owned the bar in the restaurant said to Derek Jeter, oh my God, I can't believe you're here before your final game. I can't believe that you came into my restaurant. And Derek Jeter simply said to him, well, you never invited me. I mean, you, you, you never invited me before. So it was just, that was pretty telling. It was pretty gosh darn amazing. All right, let me finish up here. The interview you wish never took place. Uh, 
Eric Bedard, when he first got traded to the Mariners from Baltimore, um, just was a really, really difficult, difficult guy. And in the middle of the interview, I could tell that he didn't want to do anything or say anything. But, you know, they had traded for him to be the ace of the staff because the Mariners thought that's all we need and then we'll be able to, to succeed because he had had those great years on those last-place Orioles teams. And in the middle, I just busted and I said, look, you don't want to do this, that's fine. And I, I said, don't worry about it. I'll talk to other people. And I, and I said, let's go. And I started to walk away, and I'm about five, ten feet away, and he goes, no, 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 wait, 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 Pedro, wait, wait, what do you want? And it's amazing how, and it wasn't like I was trying to play a power role. It's just, you're not going to say anything? You don't want to talk to me? Fine, you don't have to. And it's amazing when, when you kind of, I don't want to say turn the tables, but when you say, look, you don't have to talk to me, and just walk away. It's amazing how many times they say, no, 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 no. What do you need? What do you need? Absolutely. Last thing for you, Pedro Gomez, the interview or project you absolutely need to do before you shut it down someday. Oh, boy. I don't think it's going to happen, but I would love to do a day with Hank Aaron. Oh. But I, you know, his health is deteriorating. I don't think that that's probable. But boy, a day with Hank would be uh, that would be special. That or would. or even Sandy, because you know, Profax is not somebody who he's become a little more right. out in the public. But you know, he was so reclusive for so many decades, um, and and I think it'd be I think it'd be special for for that to be held on to for posterities sake just so that you know decades from now people can go back and turn on and say all right here was Koufax toward the end of his life what he had to say and I think you see it like John McCain did that wonderful documentary a year ago and then he died shortly thereafter um it's it's I think it's important for historical figures to understand what they mean to so many different people and hopefully you know something like that can happen What a conversation with Pedro Gomez, ESPN, on this wild and wacky business and the relationships that we have built throughout the years. Pedro, can't thank you enough. You are awesome. Thank you so, so much for taking part here and being in the Sports Lodge podcast, man. You are fantastic. Roger, my brother, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, and it never feels like we're having to pull teeth or... or reach for anything it's just like and you and i've talked about it it's like we're sitting at a bar having a beer and just catching up that's all (laughs) love it man pedro you're awesome thank you so much my friend look forward to the next time all right man take care pedro gomez here in the sports lodge podcast i want to thank all of you for listening to the sports lodge podcast here on the global story network and don't forget to follow us at global story net one and of course you can follow me on twitter at the sports lodge until next time i'm roger lodge saying so long everybody the sports lodge with roger lodge was brought to you by the global story network